You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. So we're going to start a series this week. It's going to run through Labor Day. Um, we're calling this series Core. Core. So the first thing I think about when I hear the word core is as I think about it in a fitness level. Right? And so mo- a lot of you know that I've had ongoing issues with my lower back, which has caused then issues with spasms in my, in my upper back. And so I've tried, I've tried chiropractic care, and my chiropractor does great work. He's done that. Um, um, I worked for a chiropractor in graduate school. And so this was an original joke. This is not canned. This is the joke I came up with when I was working for him. How many chiropractors does it take to change a light bulb? One, but it takes three visits. So um, I've, you, some of you will get it. It'll keep going. It'll keep going. Um, I've done deep tissue massage. I've done um, dry needling. And I've done physical therapy. And all have been helpful, but all have been treating a symptom and that symptom is a weak core. So at my first evaluation physical therapist, she said this to me. The problem is that your stomach muscles, I, I wrote it down, it, it burnt in my, it's seared in my conscience. The problem is that your stomach muscles have stopped firing, causing other muscles in your body to compensate. We have to get your stomach muscles firing again and in the proper sequence. My response didn't need to be seared in my mind. It was already there. I said, I didn't tell them to stop firing. And so I have no idea how to, them, how to tell them to start again. Um, I've been an athlete most of my life. Fitness has never been a focus of mine. I've always been in shape, in fitness. Um, uh, never had to really pay attention to any kind of weight because I was always active. But what I find that I do now is my, my weeks mostly consist of sitting, talking, and writing. So no wonder my stomach muscles have quit firing. They've gotten completely bored. Um, and then unfortunately, though, something like that affects all of my life, Right? I have to stretch more to preach on a Sunday morning than I did ever to play any kind of sport, right? Because I'm standing on my feet for six hours on concrete, and it's amazing what it does to my back. This little thing called our core has a great impact on a lot of our life. Now, it doesn't take a lot of imagination. It doesn't take a lot of energy. It doesn't take a lot of intelligence to learn how to strengthen your core, but I haven't, and I, would, I don't want to embarrass anyone to raise their hand. Have you, Right? Because why? Why? In human nature, we look for shortcuts. Which videos do you click the most on social media? I do when they say there's a hack, right? It's a hack. I can get to an end goal with less energy, less time, less money. And when you can pick those out, we all want those. And yes, there's no hack. There's no hack to a physical core. And, you know, there's no hack to our spiritual core. Here's, um, let's follow the science in this, right? So, so uh, in the 17th century, Isaac Newton defined, he had called, came up with the laws of motion, right? Here is his first law of motion, or in part it says, an object at rest stays at rest, and an object in motion stays in motion with the same speed in the same direction unless acted upon by an unbalanced force, also known as the law of inertia. And it fits in every area of, of life, it seems, not just in terms of the sciences. Our spiritual lives, when they are at rest, they end up staying at rest unless they get acted upon by an unbalanced force. And that unbalanced force isn't more information. And many times that unbalanced force is pain. 
But and the same thing holds true, that when my spiritual life is in motion, no matter how much force that is against that motion, if it's in motion, its tendency is to stay in motion, right? But our world, our culture, our life um, puts this centrifugal force on us, right? So when you spin and spin and spin, this force pulls us outward, pulls us outward. And the way life goes and spins, it pulls us away from God. And there is no hat for that other than to lock in and know what's happening, why it's happening, and how to dial back in. Um, I see my role as pastor in a lot of ways as how to get you moving. How do I get you moving? And sometimes that has to introduce some pain sometimes, right, to get us moving forward. Now, the central definition of core is this. The central, innermost, or most essential part of something Right? So someone might say, what is your core business? Right? What is the core, uh, what's the core problem here we're trying to solve? It's saying that if, if, we, if we attack this core, it will have impact on everything else. It is the most essential part of something. So this brings us to the series on core. What is Gateway Church's core? What's our core? What stabilizes our body and makes us effective at mission? Or another way to state this is just what makes us us, right? Because if you're here and you've been here for any length of time, what makes us us is why you're here. Now, you might not be able to articulate it all out, but there's something about us that draws you to Christ through us. What is that us? So to get to the core gateway, I figured we had to get to the core of me since if you are a guest, I'm, a found, I'm the founding pastor. The church turned 16 April 1. And 17 years ago, uh, the summer, was when my family and I moved to Atlanta, um, from Atlanta to here. So what's my core? Well, I was born in 1964 in Neptune, New Jersey. But we don't need to go back that far. But I do have to go back to seminary. In seminary, there was, there was a, a charge where you had to write what they called a theology of ministry, all right? So they weren't satisfied with you saying that you are called to ministry. They wanted to know what your anchor was. And I was quite offended by that, actually, at first. I said, I don't have to give you my anchor. I don't have to prove to you that I'm called to ministry. Now, that seems like something a New Jersey kid would say, right? So this, is, this, is, this was my approach to the Southeastern Seminary. Don't you tell me what, you know. So, but they said, no, this is not for us. It's for you because life is hard. How many know life's hard? Life's hard, right? And so life is hard in ministry. Life is hard in your industry, right? Life is hard. So when life is hard, if you don't have an anchor, you will float away, right? You will float away. You will sink. In, in fact, you know, when, when you anchor a boat or when you moor a boat to a dock in a storm, the boat's going to get destroyed. But if you take the boat into the harbor and drop anchor, more than likely the boat will survive. That anchor allows the boat to go up and down based on what's going on in the water, and yet it stays put. We need an anchor. And so their, their point was, you need a ministry anchor. The best anchors we have are found in Scripture. All right? And so here's where I found my anchor for ministry. So John 10, it's important for you to understand John 10 if we're going to get to the core of Gateway because we have to get to the core of me. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way, it's a thief and robber. 
The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Verse 5. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have, listened to, have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Here's the money verse. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it to the full. Eugene Peterson in the message version states that last sentence like this. A thief is only there to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. And isn't that what we're after? Isn't that what everyone is after? More and better life now. Where are the gaps in our lives? Post-Christ, pre-Christ. Where are the more and better life now and a life later, that this life isn't the end of life. And so here, Satan's motivation for us and God's motivation for us is pretty plain. It's very plainly stated. It's black and white. Here is what Satan wants, to steal, kill, and destroy. Bar none, not tied to any particular method, whatever works against you, this is my goal, and I will try anything and everything to achieve that purpose. God's goal, through Christ, for us to have a life more and better than we would have ever dreamed. Christ said, pretty, pretty plain in what to want. Um, this passage actually it gets broader than this in my life, but the number one thing this thing anchored in me is that was God was calling me, to, calling me to be a shepherd. A shepherd. Takes all kinds of leaders to do all kinds of things, right? Different leaders have different gifts, different bents, different things they do good, th different things they, they don't do as well. So that's, that's leadership. My call is solidified in that God has called me to be a shepherd. And so things don't always move the fastest with a shepherd, Things don't always get run down and run over right away with a shepherd. But I, I have to live within what God has wired me to be. And my wiring is shepherd. And any time that it looks like that I'm getting out of kilter with my call or how I'm leading, this is the passage that brings me back down and says, Charlie, you're a shepherd. Shepherd people. All right. Now, that was in the, that was in the late 80s. You fast forward into 2000 and I start postgraduate school. In the postgraduate school, it was, I was chasing a degree that was called 21st Century Church Leadership. The premise of this was the postmodern culture had shifted, our culture had shifted to a postmodern culture. And in that shift to a postmodern culture, the modern church was declining. In the U.S., church attendance has been declining over the decades. It's been declining. What is the decline about? The decline is about that the culture has changed, and in large measure, the church hasn't. 
Now, that doesn't mean in style what it means in, in um, equipped in order to answer the questions that a new culture is asking. Case in point, the modern church, the church that you and I grew up in, maybe, maybe not, you, didn't, you might not have grown up in church, but if you're at least my age, this is the church, it was to answer the question, why does God exist? It's, it was kind of drilled in me. How do you apologetically prove that God exists? And yet the culture shifted and wasn't interested in that question. For that question, they would say, all right, I'll give you that he exists. My question is, is what difference does it make? Oh, wait a minute, I gotta find that answer, right? Because we've been taught to the test. How do you answer questions that a modern church would ask and yet the culture starts asking different questions, all right? And so this is what this degree program was. It was how do we understand this postmodern culture and how do we then present Christ in a manner that the culture is actually looking for, okay? So it's not changing who Jesus is. We, ch we have to understand the question so we know what, what, you know how to present Christ. So here's an example. Postmodernism, my, my quick and dirty definition, is a way of thought that shapes culture. It is a post-truth, post-trust, post Unity, really. Culture. Post-truth, post-trust, post-unity. You think about post-truth. We all now have, can have our own truth. You can have a truth. I can have a truth. They can be diametrically post-truth, but is yours and this is mine, which makes them true. It's post-true, post-truth. What do we know of Jesus? If you're, if you're a Christian, we know that Jesus calls himself the truth. We know he calls himself the way and the truth, right? And this is where we find life. And yet we live in, a post we live in this postmodern culture that says, oh, no, there's plenty of truths, all right? Post-trust culture, post-trust. The church used to be a trusted institution. Pastors actually used to be one of the higher um, uh, professions in terms of respect. I, I used to be able to play golf on Mondays at golf courses for free. I lament this. I, I, I lament the drop of, of but, but, but churches were trusted places. But now we're in, a, we're, we're in a culture that doesn't trust any formal institution. And some for good measure, right? But we're post-truth, post-unity. So we're, we're no longer, we no longer have one central thread that runs through us. We're all separated by gender, race, religion, economics, Socially, right? Then everybody has their own definition of who they are. And it's so easy then to pit one against the other if we really are different. But we know in Christianity, we're all, we're all the same under the cross. That there is no slave. There is no free. There is no Greek. There is, there is no Jew. There is no male. There is no female. We are, we are one in Christ. This, this is why the, the church gets pushed back so much on because all of the biblical message from the church stands diametrically opposed to a shifting culture. I've taught you this before. The people that yell the, yell the most have the least to say. And we live in a screaming culture about how much um, culture knows and how far beyond behind the rest of us are. So my epiphany on, on reaching a postmodern culture came in a night class, a night class when I should have been asleep. The class was 7 to 10 o'clock after already 8 to 11, 1 to 4, 7 to 10. 
And I'm in this class, and the class was, was built to prepare um, the students for their doctoral project. So the professor writes on the board these three words, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathy. And then he goes on to explain these words in a very easy context. Orthodoxy, right thinking. Orthopraxy, right method. Orthopathy, right heart. And it was there I hijacked the class. Unknowingly, I said out loud in a class of 40 postgrad students, I said, and that's the problem. I don't know where he was going with the class. I'll tell you where it went. <laughs> so Charlie, what are you talking about? I said, that is how the church in my lifetime has gone about evangelism and reaching other people with the message of Christ. One, especially in the 80s, it was around orthodoxy. The teaching of apologetics. It's very important that we know what we believe, right? If you don't know what you believe, then you don't know what you don't believe, right? It's very important to know what you believe but we were learning it in a way in which we could counteract the modern culture's questions. Why does God, how, how do you know God exists? Well, let me tell you this, let's go back to first cause, let's go back, right? And we argue that point, but now we're in a culture that doesn't care about those questions, or at least some of those questions. So no wonder someone's not wanting to entertain a conversation with me around the origin of man, right? Hi, my name's Charlie, would you like to discuss, right? And then there was ortho, orthopraxy. Orthopraxy is a good thing. It's right method. It's what led to a church growth in, for, for people my age and the boomers. I'm, I'm the, I'm the uh, youngest boomer by cutoff in my age. Boomers were not interested in the way their parents did church. Boomers were looking for something better. So right method was, came out of a right heart out of how do we make church better? I've told you this before. People say, I don't like disorganized religion. I say, I don't like disorganized religion, right? I, I, want something, I want something good, better. If we can make it good, we'll make it good. Someone, it's interesting, I met, I met someone who moved here from what state? And, uh, in between services, actually. Actually, I met, anybody here move from California? Raise your hand so we don't, make, okay, so we, okay. So tap down the laughter, please, guys. Almost. But, but I, and, and, he, and, he, and he, after he introduced himself, to, introduced himself to me, he said, you guys have really good coffee. <laughs> and I said, it's awesome. I said, we grind our own beans. And, right? and why, why would we do that? Well, we want to make things better. Make things better. There's nothing wrong with making things better, right? I prefer sitting on those chairs than I do the wood pews I grew up on. I prefer, I prefer a, uh, an air conditioner room to humidity. Right? I prefer, I prefer people playing and singing on key. I, you know, I, <laughs> I prefer all of these things. But do you know that they don't move the needle unless someone starts with the right heart? So my conclusion here was, the modern church is trying to reach a postmodern person that doesn't care about the same questions anymore. They're interested, not just does it matter, their main question is, how does this work in your life? Does this matter to you, Thawne? Does it change you? Is your life any different than my life? Do you walk, when you walk through something, it looks like you're, walk, you're walking through it the same way I'm walking through it. And so here comes, I'm starting to put these things together. 
pain starts entering my life and Gina's life shortly after graduation, about 18 months in, we are feeling um, that our current place we were pastoring, not lead pastoring, I was on staff for 13 years, that this wasn't the place that this was going to play out. And the stir started going to actually planting our own church. Well, there's nothing fun and enjoyable about this process, right? Because my wife was saying, okay, well, that's really great. Do you have really a plan on how we're gonna eat? When we moved here, Annie said, dad, where's the church? But we couldn't get away from, we couldn't get away from this core that God was calling us to begin a place that would develop spiritually influential people. That the problem isn't with our shepherd. The problem is there aren't enough strategically placed shepherds that live a spiritually influential life. That evangelism, if I can use that word in here today, as quoted by someone um, from Willow Creek in, back in the day, said evangelism is a math problem. There just aren't enough people doing it. But in fact, the modern church, we taught evangelism as a class. <laughs> here are the questions to ask. Here's the order in which to ask them. If they say this, you say that. If they see this, you say that. Evangelism was taught as a course. Anybody take any kind of evangelism course growing up? Evangelism is explosion, specifically something I took, right? <laughs> if you were to die today, do you know that you would go to heaven? First person I ever asked that to, promise. I said, I don't believe in heaven. And I went, okay, well, I guess I can skip the next three questions, right? Because <laughs> I'm asking questions they're not even really, really interested in. So, what are then the three elements? So 23 years of processing this, I came up with the same answers I did in my doctoral class. What keeps someone from being spiritually influential? Here are the three disconnections that I discovered and I still land on. One is a disconnection to God. That, that life is hard and life is hard. We all understand life is hard and as Christians, we still have to live the same hard life. And, but if we're not careful, our eyes get on the hard and it pulls us away from a connection with Christ. We're too busy living or trying to live or managing life that our relationship with God gets stale and it gets stuck. Stale and stuck. So who wants to share a stale and stuck life? Who wants to hear about a stale and stuck life? Right? The remedy for this then is a, conne a connection, a fresh connection to God, which we call here fresh starts. Now the other message is I'm gonna break out fresh starts, great friends, real purpose. I tried to do fresh starts and spiritual influence today in this one sermon, and I realized it wasn't possible. So I had to drop the fresh starts and try to circle around spiritual influence. So, so stay with me. So the second disconnect is a disconnection from God's people. We have a disconnection from God because life is hard. We have a disconnection from God's people. And generally because we're too distracted to stay connected to the body and add to that that we have a predisposition that leans into self-sufficiency. Would anybody agree with that assessment? 
that our tendency, our default, is to lean into self-sufficiency, not dependence, right? Because dependence on someone makes me feel weak. But if we're not in community together, how are we going to grow in Christ when the church was God's idea for our growth and develop maturity. When I have a thought or an idea in my office, generally, if I'm willing to bring that thought to our staff meeting, I like the thought. But it's amazing that when I get in staff meeting and put out the thought, how better it comes out after staff meeting. One of the, one of the best passages of scripture that men's ministry uses uh, across the board is iron sharpens iron, right? It's, it's like the quintessential men's ministry Right? Like women don't like use sharp objects. I, I don't know. But iron sharpens iron. Here's the thing that we don't like. When a piece of iron hits a piece of iron, it causes sparks. It takes conflict in order to bring about maturity. But what do we do? We, we, we lean into self-sufficient. We also don't want a confrontation. So if you bother me, I'm just going to go someplace else. I'm going to choose another group. I'm going to choose another church. I don't want to deal with conflict. And yet, how about if conflict is actually what makes us more mature in Christ? And you know, I say all the time that we're here to borrow. Well, now I've said gain faith, grow faith. But we're to borrow faith, lend faith, link faith. All right? And so this is how we have to remedy this pull away from community we have, to lean, we have to lean into community to solve that disconnection. The third one is, in general, people are too focused on self-fulfillment. And I'll put me in that, that, that box, but a hyper-focus on self-fulfillment distracts you from your real fulfillment. So I've said this around here for years, that, that I, have found, I have found people long for a purpose, but they settle for a cause. Causes are short-lived, they're like crack. You, kinda, you, can, you do it for a little bit and it scratches that itch and then you go to the next cause and the next cause. But that's not what we were built for. We weren't built to go from cause to cause to cause to cause. We were built for purpose. A purpose bigger than ourselves. And I contend this is that purpose. That spiritual influence is our purpose, to be involved in the process of someone else discovering who Jesus is. How many in the room, someone else was involved in your process in coming to Christ? You didn't just pick up a book in the Bible and read it by yourself, right? Okay. Our responsibility, a guy in town, we prayed over his church, um, Christ, uh, Christ Chapel, and I remember um, he came to see me, young church planner, came to see me about five years ago. And he said, man, our temporary space is, you know, is, is, is changing, it's hard. Um, we, we've got to buy property, we've got to build a building, but I just don't know if the church is supposed to do that. I don't know if the church is supposed to then, if we focused on building a building. And he was really like spiritual and holy with me. And I went, well, Jeremy, tell me this. Did you come, did you come to Middle Tennessee to plant a temporary church or a permanent church? I said, because if you came to plant a temporary church, I wouldn't do a thing. I just keep going from storefront to storefront to storefront. But if you came to plant something that you wanted to sit there for the next 200 years, go get yourself some property. I love the fact that there were cows on this property. 
for who knows how long cows were on this property. But now there's a church on this property. And I'm long gone, and there'll be a church on this property, and there will be people gathered in his name in this property, hopefully still concerned enough about the people in their sphere of influence, in their circle, that, that they'll tell them about Jesus. So, Gateway's core, develop spiritually influential people by connecting them to God, fresh starts, one another, great friends, and the world around them, real purpose. When, when I was at the height of praying for what God had for Gene and I, I'm in my office and I am, I'm crying. I know you have a hard time believing that. I was crying. And I was saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know what you want me to do. I don't know how to do it. I wouldn't even know the first thing about leading a church by my, you know, as a lead pastor. I wouldn't even know what to call the church. And when I finished praying, I looked at my bookshelf. It was right in front of me. And I had my master's thesis and my doctoral project. They were sitting side by side on that shelf. And I looked at them and I knew exactly what they both said. And I felt like the Lord said in my heart, I have spent, I have spent your life telling you how to lead this place. I have spent your life. And so church purpose, develop spiritually influential people because I believe if we're after the life that he has designed for us, it comes through not just the exercise of spiritual influence, but all that it takes to become spiritually influential. What's our church name? Gateway. John 10. How am I to pastor this church? Shepherd. And when I've gotten out of my lane in terms of how I lead, I always end up circling back to shepherd because that's at my core. And at our core as a body, it is to become spiritually influential. Now, let me, let me define spiritual influence for you. Spiritual influence is the impact of moving someone one step closer to Christ as a result of our connection or interaction, right? Because it can be very nebulous, Pastor. You're talking about spiritual influence, but I, know, I don't know what you mean. I don't know how to measure it. Well, it's very difficult to measure except for this. I can measure how I'm chasing after God. I can measure that. I can, me I can, I can measure how engaged am I in community and how is that community impacting me. I can, I can, I can measure that. How am I engaged in the purpose that I'm called to the people around me in my, my circles? I can measure that. I might not be able to measure my impact on David's life. But what I can measure is, is, is in my connection with David, am, is he leaning more into Jesus or Christianity? Is he leaning more that way? Is he more curious about it? Or have I left him in the same place I found, I found him? Or actually starkly... Worse would be, have I left him further behind? Has his, 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 my interaction with him caused him to think less of who God is than the first time we met one another? I remember, Annie, you remember when you told me that one interaction at the AT&T store? Dad, you can't remember that you're a pastor in this town, right? Because I had gone off on someone in the store, right? <laughs> and and <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really not bad at it, you know? Uh, and... <laughs> 
And so, like, I just took myself, would I, would I, would I have done that at church? No, but I, you know, took myself out of the church context, dropped me in this other context, I can be who I want to be, right? Wrong. Wrong. If I have my purpose in that interaction with the individual, if my purpose is this interaction, Lord, I'm asking that you somehow assist me that this connection or interaction will move someone closer to Christ and not away from them. But if I see that individual as someone that is there to serve me, my interaction with them is completely different. Try this at lunch today. I can't tell you how many grumpy servers I run into on Sundays. And I always ask them, I really do. Hey, is it because it's Sunday? And they go, yes. These church people, they don't tip. They're rude. I promise. I, I, I would have a list. If I would have kept notes, I'd have a list of waitresses. And it always costs me so much more money because I feel like I got a double tip. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if, if someone, our interaction is out to serve us, we're going to treat them differently if we understand that we are there for them. And what changes is that I don't care what the culture is. I don't care the next culture shift. The next culture shift is not going to be immune to doing life this way, right? It's not going to be immune to me staying connected to Christ, being shaped in community, realizing that God's put me here for them. I don't care what the culture is. They're always going to be connected to us as individuals. All right. Come on up, team. I feel less constricted by time at the 11 o'clock than I do at the 9. Um, I just hope some of this is clear, but it's sure deep inside of me. You, you ne never underestimate the right now and long-term impact of spiritual influence. Never underestimate the power of fresh, connected with the power of community, connected to the power of purpose. But do you know when you have to be prepared to be prepared for the moment means you have to be prepared before the moment. Pastor, how would I prepare for an interaction like that? Well, you have to prayer, prepare before the moment. I don't have, the time, I don't have time to tell this story in, in, its, in its detail. But this week, a friend of mine from high school um, had a birthday and I sent him a text and said, happy birthday. And the text back, I'm sorry, it's my story, so I'm the hero. But he said, you will always be my hero, one of my heroes. Why? Because as a senior in high school, he was a junior. We played high school baseball together. He stretches a single and double, slides hard in second base, and his knee pops. He hit the bag so hard, it pops. They carry him off the field, and they sit him they sit him in the dugout. And he's like two or three people over for me. But I believed God had told me to pray for him. But I also believed God told me to put my hand on his knee and pray for him. Middle of a baseball game, open dugout, teenagers. Thank you, Alex. You understand the pressure here, don't you? So I slid over, put my hand on his knee. Bobby, can I pray? Yeah, you, I asked. Bobby, can I, pray, can I pray for you? Well, he knew me. The answer was yes. I pray for him. I, I don't remember anything else except nine years later, I get a phone call. I'm at a church in Texas. I get a phone call and the call says, hey, my name's Bobby Smith. And this was a different Bobby. The guy I prayed for is Bobby James. He said, um, hey, do you, do you remember me? Yeah, Bobby, we, we, we played high school baseball together. Yes. 
He said, you remember praying for Bobby James that day? And I went, sort of. He remembered that he never missed a practice or a game. No, I don't think I remembered that. He said, well, he never missed a practice and he never missed a game. And shortly after that, I gave my life to Christ. And I go, wow, it's amazing. Man, I appreciate you calling and telling me that, but how did you track me down? He said, oh, um, I'm here with uh, two guys you went to college with. Where are you? Augusta, Georgia. What are you doing in Augusta, Georgia? I'm the student pastor at a church that you went to college with this friend. I'm like, oh my gosh. Did they know your history, right? <laughs> Fast forward. I preach for him in an elementary school gymnasium as he's raising money to plant a church. And today, this church, Journey Church in Augusta, Georgia, is thousands of people. It's thousands of people. They hold services in the in downtown where there's five and 6,000 people would show up on special events. Simple interaction, not even addressed to him. Not even addressed to him. So it wasn't, it wasn't about Charlie. It was about understanding the moment, being willing to step into the moment. And believe me, if it wasn't for the church I was around, the people I was around, the connection that my mom helped foster with the Lord, this doesn't happen. But it happens in that context, and look what happens. Who knows how many thousands and thousands of people, just that one guy. So much is at stake, folks. The life you're looking for is at stake, and the life of other people is at stake. down to will we press in and keep our relationship fresh will we press in and do community when doing community is hard it's hard to do community will we press in and realize all the other stuff in our life is about placement more than it is about furtherance it's about placement it's placing us in certain context with certain people at certain times for us to step into that so why does what's the core of gateway church Core Gateway Church is to develop spiritually influential people who are connected to God in a fresh manner, connected to one another that grows and shapes us and will live our life on purpose with a real purpose. This is why we're here. This is why we exist. I don't promise that we always do it great. I don't promise it's, uh, I'm always great. I don't promise that, I, I tell you that we try that do every energy and every dollar and all this goes through that filter. Will, will this have an impression? Will this move people closer to Christ? Will it help our people become more fresh, more connected, more driven around purpose? Will it do those things? And if it will, we want to do it. If it doesn't, we don't want to do it. We don't want to waste those, the time, those resources, and that energy. So, ushers, come on and take your place. Hold for a second there with communion. Um, All of this comes down to what Jesus did on the cross, right? If, if Jesus doesn't die on a cross, then we're like every other world religion still chasing our tail. Every empty philosophy, 
every new version of some new faith system. But yet because Jesus dies on a cross, we have new life. And there's a phrase that says that vision leaks. Vision leaks, right? This is why we would do a vision series, a core series. Because of the new folks that have called Gateway Home, the guests of, look, on this Sunday and this month, you get to know everything. Pull back the veil. You get to know everything about who we are and what we do. But with, but with Christ, he is the ultimate change agent. And so he leaves us with this sacrament called the Lord's Supper, called the Eucharist, called communion, in which he tells us to remember his death each time we do this. To remember his death is to remember his purpose. To remember his death is to remember his power. To remember his death is to remember his life. And it's a very concrete example. Bread and wine, or in our case, a cracker and grape juice. One represents his body broken for us. One represents the blood that he shed for us. Christianity is very, very unique. He, in, in one discourse, I believe it's in John, he, he tells the crowd, unless you eat my body and drink, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part of me. In the context, they say, this is a hard teaching. Who can follow this? It's hard. Because Christianity is something we ingest. Jesus is someone we ingest. He, he changes us from the outside. It's not an outside behavioral modification system. Christianity is something that is at our core. It's not something we choose as a particular style of life. It's at our core who he is, and it changes everything about the outside. I've been following Christ for 51 years, and I'm, he's still changing and transforming me. And so when we receive this today, we're receiving a transformative power in his body and in his blood in the representation of a cracker and juice. I can't explain it. There is mystery and mystique, but it's something real. The ushers will hand, will pass the plate. The cups are nested together. The bottom cup has the wafer. The top cup has the juice. You'll take both cups. If you'll hold both cups, then we'll circle back and we'll receive it together. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.